0: My name is Elisa Minkin, I'm a general pediatrician, and I'm also the chair of the JOMA Preventative Health Committee, and I'm really excited and honored to be here with Dorit Rubenstein-Rice. Dorit is a professor of law at the University of California, Hastings College of the Law. Increasingly, her research and activities are focused on legal issues related to vaccines, including exemption laws and tort liability related to non-vaccination. She published law review and peer-reviewed articles and many blog posts on legal issues related to vaccines. She received an undergraduate degree in law and political science from the Faculty of Law in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She received her PhD from the Jurisprudence and Social Policy Program at UC Berkeley. She's a member of the Parents Advisory Board of Voices for Vaccines and the Vaccine Working Group on Ethics and Policy, and active in vaccine advocacy in other ways. So I am so excited and honored to be here with you. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Like I said, it's my honor. So I entitled this talk, I'm not... Anti vax, but. And the reason I chose that is because I hear that as a pediatrician all day long. And so I want to start with just if you could explain to us the difference, there's really a whole spectrum. I mean, people think it's either you're pro vaccine or you're anti vaccine, and that's not correct.
1: That's exactly right. We have a spectrum that ranges from being very strongly pro vaccine, in a sense, a vaccine advocate or vaccine ad- activist to being very strongly anti-vaccine, an anti-vaccine advocate or activist. Mm. Uh, and in between, we have hesitation both way, pro-vaccine but hesitant, and anti-vaccine but unsure. Uh, when, and part of the what's going on is that the people you hear most online may well be in the extremes, but most people fall somewhere in the middle. Most, yeah.
0: Right. And it's understandable to be hesitant. We're talking about the COVID vaccine. This is really a whole Mm -hmm. separate category. When people say there's no long term data, well, of course there isn't.
1: It's new. Right? It's brand new. I will point out that yes and and no. Mm -hmm. So there's a a few things that are unusual about the COVID 19 vaccines and the hesitancy, but there's also a few things that are very much, we've seen this before. Mm -hmm. Every time a new vaccine comes, there's initial hesitation from people in accepting it. Mm -hmm. So usually uptake starts low and picks up over time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I don't have data for the measles vaccine, for example, but as you probably know as well, that was true for hepatitis B vaccine. That was Mm -hmm. true for HPV vaccine. Mm -hmm. That's true for rotavirus vaccines. Often for new vaccine, uptake is uh, slow at first. Now, some things are unusual for COVID-19 vaccine. For one thing, we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're Dang. seeing close up the harms of COVID-19 disease. So you'd hope that there'll be more uh, readiness to accept the vaccine because we know the risks from the other side, are really high. But even here, as you're saying, uh, the vaccine development process has been faster than usual. So people are understandably nervous and we've seen more politicization of covid right. than we normally do, which is also not helping.
0: Right. So we have
1: factors pulling in
0: in both directions, um, and and it's it's un- like I said, I keep saying it's understandable. I think when we approach vaccine hesitancy, that we have to do it with such empathy, and we have to do it yes. calmly and not be strident, you know, super pro vaccine and act like there's there's no potential risks.
1: Yeah, I think that you exactly hit it when you're saying when we approach vaccine hesitancy. First of all, I will say it's not only legitimate. It's important for someone considering a vaccine to ask questions Mm -hmm. and uh, to not assume anything and to approach it with, I want to know more. That's Mm -hmm. very appropriate. Not a a lot of people just accept recommendations on trust, but they think asking questions is appropriate and right. Mm -hmm. Uh, that would certainly not make one anti-vaccine and being nervous about a new vaccine is also appropriate and right. I think the, you cross the line when you get to the point where evidence doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. That's where you cross the line from having concerns or having hesitancy to being anti-vaccine.
0: Right, can we talk a little bit more about the anti-vaccine movement just to put it in context? So what I'm trying to make this for is people who, whose parents, whose friends, whose neighbors are sending them videos Yes. They don't know what to make of it or they're believing in it and they don't know what to trust or who to go to. So I really want to make it for all these groups. So I think we have to first start with, you know, who are the anti-vaxxers, the true anti-vaxxers? They're not a, a homogeneous group.
1: No, they're not. So we can think about at the organization level, not mm-hmm. not at who the people are. We can think about uh, three big groups. Mm mm-hmm. One is the creators of misinformation, the organized creators of misinformation. We have a number of organizations who are dedicated to creating anti-vaccine content. They are professional at it. They get money for it. Mm-hmm. They sometimes use professionals such as lawyers, PR people and the other professionals to create content that looks very convincing. And they usually do not have subject matter expert If they have people with scientific training, they'll usually not be in the vaccine area. Not 100%, but most of the time. But these are the organized creator of anti-vaccine knowledge. Then you have the grassroots activists. Mm. These are people who fervently believe in anti-vaccine activism. They'll sometimes make a meme, but they're not professional. Uh, These are believers that are out on a mission to convert they would also distribute the content from the organizations I mentioned in first, and they'll go out, they're the foot soldiers that are out to convince others. They're very passionate, they're very dedicated. Often they really, really believe what they say Mm -hmm. Uh, and they come across as sincere because they are. Uh, So they're an important part of promoting the anti-vaccine misinformation, but they're generally not the ones that come up with the ideas. The third group is a group of people who believe conspiracy theories generally and are therefore, vulnerable or participating in also sharing uh, conspiracy theories about vaccines. Now, if you want to know more specifically, to give two examples of organization, we have the organization called Informed Consent Action Network, run by Del Bigtree, which in 2019 has received $3.4 million in donation and uh, has a weekly broadcast. So this is an organization that's has the money to hire professionals to help them, that create content that can look professional, but that does not have any experts among its leadership and whose information is consistently blatantly wrong. Mm -hmm. Another similar organization is a children's health defense run by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. who, which again has relatively high levels of donation creates content that may seem professional and has people that may seem on first glance professional, even though they're not experts in any field related to vaccines. So these are the uh, content creator. Uh, I don't think I can target, I I can do something like this for grassroots activists without targeting individual and I'm a little hesitant to do that. Right, and when you say do things, what do you mean? uh, I don't think I can give you a, a, a some sketch of um, the grassroots activists without pointing the finger at a specific person. Right, right. Because I
0: think that most people are most likely to come into contact with the passionate grassroots type believer. Yeah. The classic story is my child got a vaccine and got autism or yes. an autoimmune disorder. And how do you respond to that even? I mean, you can't disbelieve their story and,
1: and you shouldn't, right? Um, so here's the thing. There are two parts to this. So as you're correctly saying, a lot of the grassroots activists go to that, something happened to the child and they blame it on vaccine. Mm -hmm. There's two parts to that. We certainly shouldn't disbelieve that the child uh, that someone when someone is telling you my child suffered and it was traumatic and painful, I'm suffering. We can all relate to that. We Mm -hmm. shouldn't disbelieve the suffering. But when they then go on and say, and the vaccine caused it, I think it's fair to ask about that, especially if the claim is something like autism, seeds or food allergies, all things that have been studied Mm -hmm. and found not linked to vaccine. So when we're hearing those stories, it's really important to separate the real sympathy for the person who's suffering, for for the difficulty of dealing with a difficult family situation, and uh, what actually caused this. Uh, For you, you're a doctor, sometimes it's your job to tell people, I understand that you think that this is a connection, but it's not. And if you don't follow the real cause, you won't be able to improve the situation. Uh, and, And people are probably not going to like hearing that, but sometimes just that's the right thing to do. And that's true online as well. Sometimes the right thing is to say, either to the person or to any other listeners, I'm sorry you're in this situation. I'm sure this is hard, but blaming it on vaccine is wrong and doesn't help anyone because that's really where we are with a lot of these stories. Now, the problem with that is that it's inevitable that the person you're telling this to, however sympathetic you say it, is going to hear you're calling me a liar or you're calling me crazy. That's not Mm -hmm. what I'm saying because someone can sincerely believe something wrong without being stupid, liar, or crazy. We all make mistakes, but that's what the person you're interacting with online is going to hear. They're going to think you're calling them something, and they're going to react with hostility, and that's understandable and natural, but we still have to speak up Mm -hmm. and say vaccines don't cause autism. I'm sorry you're dealing with a special needs child. I know you need support, and I know our system is really bad at giving it sometimes, but blaming vaccines doesn't help
0: Right. I mean, I think it's more tricky than that for my interactions. I think Uh that people are getting more sophisticated and because we've already shown scientifically that vaccines don't cause autism per se, you will hear it's autoimmune, it's a, you know, special vulnerability that hasn't been exactly diagnosed. And I don't think our job is to disbelieve the person's specific story. I think the job is to be empathic and then step away and not let them scare you right? I don't think you can ever um, undo um, a belief belief system. And somebody who really believes in it, I think that for somebody who's dealing with a family member like this, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, it may be better to agree to disagree.
1: Uh, So again, it depends where you are. When I speak online, I'm not speaking to the person I'm interacting with. I'm speaking to others. Mm -hmm. Um, Letting the story stand in that situation can harm others. Mm -hmm. I, I just feel that that's a problem Uh, but if you're saying "Well, I continue the back and forth and continue to try and disprove their story to them that's probably a mistake Mm -hmm. I mean at some point you you, if you're saying when you're interacting with a person or if you're interacting with them even in a group at some point you put that aside we agree agree to disagree if that's what you mean then I agree Uh, but it has to I think you need to also be clear that when you're talking to others. Uh, that you're not disagreeing because it's a matter of opinion. You're disagreeing because there's clear external evidence that vaccines don't cause, for example, autism. Right, right. But like I said, it's
0: it's often the story is more subtle than that. And I think you can get in a trap by trying to disagree. And again, when we're talking about people listening, they're probably not vaccine advocates like you. Yes they're yes. probably just dealing with a family member or a friend and they don't know how to deal with it. So I think it's important to get across the point that there are a group of people who you will not change their minds.
1: Yes. And okay. I, think I, think, mm-hmm. I think you're right. Uh, at some point, so people do change their mind. Even the most anti-vaccine people can change their mind, but it has to come from them. Mm-hmm. And uh, what you can do is share information, be patient Not let so relationships matter, and letting the one disagreement on vaccines ruin the rest of the relationship is probably a bad idea. And sometimes, when it's a one on one, it's someone you care for, someone you love, the best thing you can do is uh, work on building the trust, put us raise the point and put it aside. my friend Colleen McRoberts has a really nice uh, article called uh, the most important playground conversation. And his point is, there's two ways to enter such an argument. Are you there to win? Are you there to actually interact? Um, People don't like to lose. Mm -hmm. If you turn it into an argument, even if you win, you've probably lost. If you're trying to work with someone you care for, and you also want to preserve the relationship, you can say, I think this is wrong. Here's my information. But going more than five, he, he gives the number five. Obviously, that's kind of arbitrary. But going more than five mm-hmm. times back and forth, that's probably the end of productive discussion. And it's time to put it aside and move on. If you establish trust and you provide good sources and you explain where you are in a non-confrontational ma- manner, his point of view is when the person is ready to consider, they will consider what you said. It has right. to come from them though. Exactly. And, you, with... mm-hmm. and
0: another common scenario is somebody who is just facing vaccine misinformation you yes. know, classically, you get forwarded an email, a WhatsApp, you know, a video. There are so many videos. And I'm starting to see that the ones that go viral 100% mm-hmm. are misinformation because good information never goes viral. Yeah. <laughs> Why? yeah the, um, uh, what's it saying? Uh, by A lie time the truth
1: gets out, yeah.
0: before the pan, pan, uh, truth gets its pants on. It's been misquoted and tweaked around, yes. but that's the basic idea is that, you know, misinformation sells. Correct information, not so much. And I think I want to go through just for a few minutes some of the techniques that anti-vaccine misinformers use to make it so difficult. Yes. So people don't get stuck because I think there is a rabbit hole that it's so easy to go down and Mm -hmm. you will never, you won't win here. Even for people who aren't fixing on their beliefs because if you try to just debunk and -hmm. I think studies show that debunking is, you know, specific myths may be counterproductive.
1: Depending, I mean, there's... uh... Most of the scholars I appreciate actually think that the uh, claim that debunking backfires is um, not in line with with the best data we have. But there is um, a question there. So, um, starting from the from the top, so you're correctly saying uh, they use certain technique, and some of it is more effective. And I will give you an example. I had a, I heard a talk from a, a, someone who is uh, a researcher of conspiracy theories, not anti-vaccine, more generally. And one of the younger uh, research assistants one time came and said, you know, I'm starting to think the thing was in fact faked. He's been reading this stuff so much that it was hard and he was there, he knew he was going in to research conspiracy theories. And it affected him. Exactly. So what what do they use? There's several really good studies on that. Uh, right now, we're dis- describing, we'll talk about what can you do later. Mm-hmm. Um, so one, one uh, classic technique, going back to your point about the autism parent, is the use of anecdotes, use of a story over, um, over data. It's almost always easier to relate to a story than to data points. Uh, we can s- realize that thousands of people dying COVID-19 every day means that families seeing a loved one die all across the country every day but we can't relate to it as well as we can relate to the story of a mom whose four-year-old was active in the morning and was in bed with COVID-19 and a high fever and died within a few days Um, uh, we can relate to that a lot better than to the data Mm -hmm. that's how we were wired anti-vaccine groups use stories and they use them consistently and it's very powerful. So one thing is use anecdote over data. Uh, and the problem with that is obviously uh, that if you take, we va- we have a 4 million baby cohort every year. We vaccinate them at two, four, and six months. That's uh, 10,000 babies reach two, four, and six months every day. That's 30,000 babies vaccinated a day. As long as the rate of, let's say, seeds is lower than, uh, is higher than that one per 30,000, we'll have some seeds deaths within the day from vaccination just by coincidence. Mm -hmm. And we're going to make, and the parent is going to make the connection because that's how we work. Uh, It's hard to get across the fact that anecdotes are a problem, even if the parent completely believes, even if the parent's description of, what happened is accurate uh, because th- with that, the numbers we're talking on, coincidence are going to happen. They're just impossible to avoid.
0: Right. If something happens after something, it doesn't mean it was caused by the first thing. Exactly. And we're going to have this with COVID over and over, the vaccine over yes. and over as we're doing this on a global basis.
1: Yes. There's a great article by, um, uh, I think, Derek Chloe on a science magazine where he said, if you take 10 million people and you touch them on the hand, within the next few days four thousand of them are going to die from a heart attack and he gives the numbers of a number of other things just from touching them on the hand whatever you do after that there's going to be certain kinds of harms when it's a vaccine you're going to make the connection Uh, and it's hard to fight so anecdotes is a big part Uh, the other narrative so there's basically four narratives that anti-vaccine people uh, raise one the disease aren't so bad. You hear that with measles is just a rash and a fever, even though measles is one of the most dangerous rash diseases and uh, kills about one in a thousand and causes pneumonia in about one in 20, they downplay the risks of the different diseases. Uh, two, they overstate the risks of vaccine or attribute to vaccines risks that they don't have. For example, um, Vaccines cause seeds is a good example. Vaccines cause autism is another. Three, they um, say there are alternatives to vaccine. Take vitamin C for measles. There's no evidence that vitamin C actually helps with measles, but you will hear that. Mm -hmm. There is evidence that vitamin A may reduce mortality, but they overstate the level of uh, health vitamin A can give, turning it into a magic cure rather than just a limited supporting preventing Mm -hmm. suicide. So um, that's the third. And the fourth is there's a conspiracy. They are out to hide the truth and harm you. These are the four narratives you hear from the anti-elixie movement. Uh, And as we said, they they put them out uh, through uh, anecdotes. They work on mistrust. Many people have good reason to mistrust government and some have good reasons to mistrust doctors. They've had bad experiences. And The vaccine activists take that mistrust to the extreme. Government can't always be trusted, it's turned into government can never be trusted, and everything they say is a lie and they're out to harm you. Uh, Again, mistrust is healthy up to a point. Right. There's no no problem with being skeptical. Skeptical is actually
0: a good way to be. But we have such fertile ground right now. Look what's happening in our country in so many areas of COVID.
1: Yes. You can't blame anyone. Yes, and when you take mistrust uh, into there's a conspiracy to get you and the government is coming to harm you, there's not a lot of place for dialogue there. And the anti-vaccine movement has to go with that conspiracy theory because otherwise they have to face the fact that the data behind vaccine comes from all around the world, from different large groups, uh, and is very robust. We have better data on vaccines than on pretty much anything else. That uh, we do in medicine, exactly beca- because vaccines are given to healthy people and because the vaccines aren't that different across countries. Well, there are differences, but they're, they're relatively small. Uh, so, we have the, to reject that data, you need to come up with a grand conspiracy theory that they are out to get you, they're out to harm you. That's the only way to hold. Right. Other tactics we hear. Um, So there's a wonderful article by anthropologist Anna Kata from 2011 called Tactic and Trucks of the Anti-Vaccine Movement. I'm mentioning that reference so that people can look it up. But for example, she says, one tactic is skewing the science. So emphasize a few articles that go your way. There's a lot of scientific articles out. Scientists know that what they should be looking at is the balance of evidence, not the one-off article anti-vaccine activists like other science deniers would latch onto the one or two articles that they think can support support their views and ignore the rest of the evidence if we have um, if if this is our graph um, if this is our graph and these are all the data points and the article you want to believe is out here they would go with the one out here
0: Right, that's called motivated reasoning, right? And this is why it's so hard to convince someone who's already convinced because no matter what you tell them, and I've had these conversations, they will find other ways to look at it. Yes. That's why trying to convince someone who's firm in their belief is not a good use of your time.
1: Yeah, and it's very human. We all want to believe that we're right going in. It's very hard to accept. One of the things that uh, some of my friends point out is that the healthy thing to do is always assume you might be wrong. Mm -hmm. Always read the other side point of view, um, and even in vaccines. So I've been in the vaccine area for a long time. Uh, I always read anti-vaccine article, and I always approach them with a view that I suspect they're going to try and mislead about vaccine. But there's probably going to be some parts that are true, and I mm-hmm. need to see what uh, I, I need to make the effort to see what's right, what's wrong, and not assume everything's wrong. Uh, not also assume everything is right. Approach with caution, because I know from reading previous articles that many of them will have misleading parts, but always approach it with, there's probably going to be at least something there that's right, and I need to look at it, learn from it, and see how it fits into the more general picture. Always approach thing with, there's more to learn and something you believe might turn out to be wrong.
0: Right, the problem, the problem is, though... Sorry. The the problem is, though, that if you are vulnerable, if you don't know, then you can get caught up in the trap. And that's the problem with people who are saying, "Okay, I'll be open minded. My friend, my family member saw this. And just like that researcher, you get caught up.
1: Yes. It's hard to assess information if you don't have the background. And most of us, all of us don't have background in something. There's this amount of knowledge in the world and we have this much time. We just realistically don't have the time. We all take the shortcut of finding someone we can trust. And the moment we find the wrong person to trust, we're in trouble.
0: You know what would know be helpful? And I want to say it now so I don't forget, is after this, I would greatly appreciate it if you would send me good resources. So if somebody writes to us, sees this and sends us an email, and we can be reached at health, H-E-A-L-T-H at J-O-W-M-A dot org. I'm happy to answer emails. I'm happy to send resources and we can just forward that over. We can keep mentioning um, sites. I found it helpful, and I will tell the story of my own just for a minute here. Um, I'm passionate about this because I have a daughter, an adult daughter on the spectrum, and she was getting diagnosed around the time that Wakefield's um, paper that showed that The MMR supposedly did cause a form of autism, which was completely debunked, but it took years to debunk. Mm -hmm. And I had another child after that, and I was afraid to give him the MMR. So Mm -hmm. I, at one point, had vaccine hesitance, even though I'm a pediatrician, because Mm -hmm. I'm a mom first, and now, of course, I'm a passionate vaccine advocate. I'm also a passionate advocate for the truth and for people to getting access to good Mm -hmm. information. So for me, I like, I like, Mm -hmm. I found you and, um, you are amazing. You're on a lot of your articles are on a site called Skeptical Raptor, Mm -hmm. um, which I I think is nice for, for some people. Um, for me, it was good. I like, Mm -hmm. I like, um, science-based medicine. I like, um, Vaxopedia is a good source. vaxopedia Vaxopedia, I love. Um, science-based medicine, and there's another one um, that I look at all the time called Skep- uh, Respectful, Respectful Insulence. Yes. Those are kind of parallel blogs because... Um, yes, the same right. author writes both of them. Right. Um, the other, vaxopedia, is, vaxopedia is great for people who want shorter because those tend to be long takedowns, yes. and if you're not the right kind of person, you can get lost in that rabbit hole. Yes. Um, vaxopedia, which is um, by a pediatrician, Victor... Vincent Vincentianelli.
1: Vincent, Vincent,
0: Ianelli. Yes. Right. vaxopedia is like the Wikipedia for vaccines. It's I think it's very reliable, and you can like it has links to everything. So it, it could be a rabbit hole, but it could also be quick.
1: Yes. The other two other uh, sources that people might want to consider is the Vaccine Education Center in the Children's mm-hmm. Hospital of Philadelphia has a wonderful material, and I'll mention one more uh, after this, and. Um, the uh, Vaccinate Your Family is another. Uh, mm-hmm. That's a nonprofit created in the 1990 by two first ladies, Rosalind Carter and Bumpy, uh, and Betty Bumpers uh, who joined together to try and get vaccines to children initially. Uh, so they also have really good resources. The other, uh, so different people have different needs. Some people need, more longer resources some people need a very short version Uh, and a lot of people have good reasons to mistrust government but there's a government site called vaccines.gov that has the most basic information in a really accessible way. So if you're looking for, I just want to get the basic and I want to understand this, vaccines.gov might actually be a, a decent place to start. As far as I know, it's made by a group of very young, very enthusiastic civil servants that they, whatever we think of government aren't the high level politicians, And I think everybody ignores them because it's such a small thing. Um so Vaccines.gov is another place people can look.
0: And that's not the CDC or the Department of Health?
1: The, so it is within the Department of Health. Mm-hmm. It's not the CDC, I think they run their stuff through the CDC for advice, but it's not the CDC. It's, um, so the CDC materials are generally written, I think they're written at eighth grade le- reading level. Uh, this site is tries to simplify compared to them. And mm. um, so... It, it's really very accessible. I'm not trying to suggest that a, our audience can't handle a great reading level, but sometimes you don't have the time right. uh, to read. And, that, and the vaccines.gov site really has very short bite-sized articles that should give you the basics quickly.
0: Right. So that's that's really, really helpful. Can we go back a little bit? Because you said that when you look at the vaccine misinformation, there often is a piece of truth. I mean, I kind of think about it like an oyster yeah. makes a pearl. They take a little bit of something and then they embellish it, embellish it and yeah. embellish it. And I think it is helpful to get to that true core and be honest about it. Yes. Can we have an example
1: of that? Yes. I'll give you two examples. One example is we've seen recently signs that say vaccine manufacturers are exempt from liability. Now that has some truths. We -hmm. have absolute liability protection for COVID-19 vaccine manufacturers, which I hope will change. And we have limited liability protection for other vaccine manufacturers. And there is a history there. But the point I'm trying to make is that much is true, but then the implication, what the promoters of that are trying to say by saying vaccine manufacturers have no liability is they're trying to tell you that means that the vaccines are unsafe. And that's untrue. A, even for the manufacturers, uh, it's the COVID-19 vaccines are very visible. If they turn out to be very unsafe, that's going to be really bad for the manufacturers. Uh, so they have incentives to try and put out a relatively safe vaccine, not absolute. And we shouldn't trust the manufacturer lot ever. But the other part of this is that we have multiple accountability mechanisms and multiple systems in place to oversee COVID-19 vaccines. So we don't depend on liability to um, oversee the safety. Uh, Not only do we have four monitoring systems for vaccines generally, that's the vaccine uh, safety data link, that's the vaccine adverse uh, reaction system—that's a reporting database—that's uh, sees as a clinical immunization safety. I don't remember what A stands for. And uh, there's another uh, monitoring uh, and monitoring system in FDA called Prism. Mm-hmm. For COVID nineteen vaccines, they put in place a number of other mechanisms. They're working is V-safe. with V Safe, yeah, yeah, V Safe, and they're working with the Department of Defense and uh, the Veteran Affairs Administration to look at to look closely at people in their facilities that get the vaccine, and monitor them, so that we have a lot of mechanisms for active monitoring it's going to be really hard for a problem not to be noticed so when you're saying vaccine manufacturers are exempt from liability and you're trying to, to imply and that's what they're trying to imply that means vaccines are unsafe you're taking a true fact and turning it into a lie another example is a the a, so there's an organization called Physician for Informed Consent, that is actually an anti-vaccine organization. Most anti-vaccine organizations do not call themselves anti-vaccine organizations. Uh, and this organization, for example, has said A MMR call causes febrile seizures. That much is true. Rarely the MMR vaccine can cause febrile seizures. Then they went on to say the MMR causes vaccine, uh, causes febrile seizures more often than measles. Now that's untrue. Right. If you look at the numbers, measles which causes the fever is a lot more likely to cause febrile seizures. And they also said that febrile seizures are highly dangerous, which is also untrue, right. because febrile seizures are extremely common among young children. And most of the time don't have uh, bad consequences. So they, again, take a grain of truth. MMR causes febrile seizures in about, I think it's one per 3,200, even though this organization overstates those numbers. Uh, and then they turn it, build a house of lies on, on top of it. It's more, MMR is more dangerous than measles, untrue, and febrile seizures are horrible, which is, I, I've known that they're really scary, but again, they're generally not harmful.
0: Right, or, or Bill Gates is trying to do population control. Yes, it was actually Blima Marcus who just explained this to me. And yes. you know, Blima Marcus, I'm involved with her. She's amazing.
1: Yeah, she's wonderful.
0: Right. I don't know if I can explain this properly. You want to try to explain it? I, I didn't even understand okay. it at first.
1: So, so the idea is in in one uh, one of his statements, uh, Bill Gates talk made apparently. I, I I don't remember the exact language, but he says something along the lines that vaccines can help with uh, depopulating the planet. So they took it and ran with it. Mm-hmm. What was he saying? He was saying. Vaccines help children survive to adulthood. Mm -hmm. If you can't count on your children surviving to adulthood, you're going to have nine children in the hope that two will survive.
0: In areas of of high mortality rate in poor countries, we're talking.
1: If you can't count on them surviving, in part because you can be sure that five of them won't die from diphtheria before they're six, and two of them won't die from measles, you're going to have two children instead of nine. So we won't have population growth. So vaccines help with depopulation by saving lives but that's not how it's represented by the anti-vaccine side. Right. It's represented as Bill Gates is out to kill, which is... So, you know, I grew up with Microsoft and Bill Gates was kind of the really evil Microsoft guy. <laughs> so it's very weird what I'm going to say, but Bill Gates has done a lot to redeem himself from the Microsoft de- days. I mean, not just vaccines, but his foundation is putting in place sanitation, nutrition, and other things in the developing world that, that are really important. He's investing a lot of money, time, and effort to s- literally save little children's life in the developing world. Uh, I think he deserves the credit for that.
0: Right, and I think that line was him realizing I was going about it the wrong way, the new way is yeah. vaccines. And his focus on vaccines is perceived to be so, so threatening to, yeah. to the anti-vaccine world. I mean, people ask me, and I do not even know what to tell them, what is motivating? The uh, real uh, anti-vaxxers.
1: Oh, the real. So it. I think it's complex. So first of all, a lot of the anti-vaccine people really believe they're doing good. Uh, as we've said, a lot of them had a the child that had something they blame on vaccine. They think they're out to save other people's children. Mm-hmm. That's one line of motivation. I'm going out to save other people's children. Attached to that are also two other lines that are a little less alt- altruistic. Which is one, uh, I want to vindicate myself. I. I decided it's a vaccine. I want affirmation. And if I go out and convince a lot of other people, they can we can reaffirm each other. So one thing is vindication of something that uh, other people are telling me I'm wrong about. The third is a community. Anti-vaccine groups create their own communities and the sense of mission together. We're out to, everybody thinks we're wrong, but we're not wrong. And we're out fighting the, a uh, big of the man world. yeah it's us against it, it, the world yes it's a strong motivating feature i think um i tell me if, I, if this is completely off but i think that's one of the things that helped jewish community communities be so cohesive we were really against the world because the mm-hmm. world was really against us to a large degree that caused a strong degree of unity and to some degree it also which has a wonderful side. I mean, I can go to a Jewish community pretty much anywhere. I get right. stuck there on a holiday. I can knock on a door of a shul and, right. as, and be welcome. But it also means that if someone tries to go outside of the community and say something, the backlash isn't always nice. So a strong community in the anti-vaccine is, on one hand, very supportive, very a powerful emotional tie. And on the other hand, means that there's hesitation to break out of the mold and leave the anti-vaccine view. A, a third motivation is a lot of people who are anti-vaccine believe in alternatives to uh, modern, modern medicines. Mm-hmm. Uh, so a lot, not all, but a lot of naturopaths are anti-vaccine, a lot of chiropractors are anti-vaccine. And so it's a combination of this is your profession, this is what you do. I, there is some of a profit motive, but I, I'm not going to overstate it. I think people usually go to become chiropractor or naturopath because they believe in what they do. It's also the job, but they believe in what they do. And part of it is accepting a non-science worldview that makes you more easily uh, accepting of anti-vaccine claims. Another group is uh, people who really mistrust government and are anti-vaccine because all governments in the world support them. Um or who are generally conspiracy theorists and also uh, like these ones. Uh, and sometimes people have great reasons to mistrust government. So if you look at where we've seen measles outbreak in the past five years, mm-hmm. we've seen them in the Somali community in Minnesota mm-hmm. that came from a country where they have excellent reasons to distrust government and had some rubbins with the Department of Health that also made them mistrust, understandable mistrust which made them vulnerable to anti-vaccine uh, entry. In right, and I, and
0: I just want to say for better means but I want to make sure that people yes. are aware that that Somali community was actually egged on by Andrew Wakefield and the anti-vaxxers who yes. literally preyed on their vulnerability.
1: Very literally. Then we had in Washington, the Ukraine community. Again, a community that came from a, from a background of, it makes a lot of sense to be suspicious of government. Mm-hmm. You really want to be cautious. Uh, and that continues understandably. And the New York uh, outbreak was in communities that have real, valid, good historical reason to mistrust government. Sorry, uh, we the Jews have had thousands of years where we have excellent reason to mistrust external government. We've learned the hard way that trusting government is often a bad idea.
0: Right. And especially during the COVID outbreak. Mm-hmm. This was literally, the flames were fanned yes. literally by government officials. I mean, you can't even deny it. It's not a conspiracy theory. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, the pro- yeah. The, and the problem with that is when you get from the justified mistrust to kind of cutting off your own nose, to protect you, to spite your face. Yes. So when mistrust turns into self-harm, that's where it becomes a problem because the community is harming itself when it's rejecting vaccine. It's opening the door to disease. That's part of the problem. And the question how do you, on one hand, understand and respect the reasons for the mistrust? And on the other hand, help the community not hurt itself worse is not an easy one.
0: No. It really isn't, but I think it's important just to have all the information you're giving. Um, I wanna go back just for a second before I forget that when you mentioned the VAERS database, I want people to be quite crystal clear that the VAERS vaccine adverse events reporting system is a passive database. And so people all the time in the anti-vaccine world will quote all kinds of numbers. They're gonna do it for the COVID vaccine too. Anybody and everybody can report anything to it. And remember that just because something happens after doesn't mean it was caused by it. That's why we're doing active monitoring as well. Yes. And I want to make another point before I forget, which is that the same vaccine is being given to all the people in the world. Like it's not like there's a separate vaccine that is somehow being foisted upon vulnerable people and there are special people getting a special vaccine. Mm-hmm. People are running to get the COVID vaccine because we understand that we're balancing any unknown risks of the COVID vaccine against the known risks of COVID. Yes. And so it's so important to get good information about what the risks of COVID are and not to believe someone who's trying to to minimize it.
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, you're looking out and you're saying, okay, we don't know yet if these vaccines will cause a very serious side effect in one in 100,000 or in one in a million. We don't. We do know that COVID-19 kills about one in a thousand in our whole population and that's when not everybody got it. So we know the lowest risk of death from COVID-19 is one in the south and it's probably higher and higher in some groups. Uh, we know that COVID-19 causes long-term harms in three out of four people that were hospitalized for it. We don't know how many other people have long-term harm. We know that it's a bad, di- bad disease that causes severe harms and we may find out more long-term harm even if those, in those that appear to have had an easy case. It's a really bad disease.
0: Right, right. We're, we're seeing long haulers and we're seeing people who get these autoimmune things like you know, chronic yes. fatigue and POTS and all of these and chronic lung and chronic heart and chronic brain, all these things that people are accusing the vaccine of doing, we already know COVID
1: does at a significant rate. Yes. So rejecting a vaccine because of a hypothetical one in a hundred thousand risk when you know you're not protecting yourself from a disease with much higher risk is a mistake. It might be an understandable mistake, but it's still a mistake. Uh, we, we don't know completely the risk profile of the vaccine. We already know enough to know the risks of COVID are higher. All
0: right. so back to the people who are getting these emails,
1: what would you recommend they do? First of all, um, don't share them further.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Second, uh, be understanding understand that people are nervous. This has been a tremendously taxing time for everybody, I think, in in one way or another. How taxing differs, but the pandemic hasn't been easy on anyone, I think. Uh, People are vulnerable, and some people reach out for the wrong places. They need help, not scorn. (laughs) One a general thing, Uh, give people general information here is some suggestion on how to identify good for bad sources. Mm -hmm. You send me this source. Here is some points that make me suspicious of it. For example, you you saw on the internet an unnamed claim that someone died. The fact that it's unnamed should raise question. We've seen at least two nurse claims that I've seen of death where the Department of Health in that state then followed up and said we, we reached out to all the hospitals no nurse has died within th- these twenty four hours um, but if you so if you get an anonymous rumor or something from a site that doesn 't have experts, beware that doesn 't necessarily mean it 's untrue, but look at your source and consider how reliable it is um, second a if there are specific claims, walk with the person through, let's go look at credible sources and see what we can find about the truths and untruths. Let's look at the specifics. Third, before you get these materials, if you can share good information, share pre-bunking materials. Uh, for example, there are already materials out, out there addressing the claim that COVID-19 vaccines can change your DNA or cause mm-hmm. infertility and, and other claims go ahead and share a, <clears throat> and share a, these pre material before anybody sends this to you. Because getting the information before the people are exposed to the misinformation is probably the best way to prepare them. And right, it's like
0: Im- Im- ideological immunization. Exactly, right.
1: exactly. Let them know in advance that this is probably untrue.
0: Right, the mRNA does not enter your nucleus. It does not alter your genome.
1: <laughs> yes. And be sympathetic to concerns. Say, I understand. Mm-hmm. This is a faci- this c- claim sounds convincing, doesn't it? Here is why I still think you should reject it. Um, don't mock people who get it wrong. None of us knows everything. Every one of us can be wrong, uh, and we're all we're kind of a team. We're uh, in a, not only in our quest to handle reality, and we know that we all depend on each other to get through the day anyway, but also in our quest to understand reality. It's a team effort. When we see something incorrect, we need help. sometimes need help working through it. I can see a claim about vaccines that looks suspicious on its face, but I don't know enough to say yes or no. What I do is I reach out to two or three people that I know that have relevant expertise. This was said. True? No? Why yes? Why no? So if you don't, if you come across a claim and you don't have expertise, ask others. If you're the person with expertise, don't laugh at the people asking you. They're asking you for help. Mm -hmm. Help them. Uh, Don't treat it as you fell for this. Ha ha ha. It's uh, nobody knows everything. People are coming to you because you have knowledge. Uh, give them the respect of addressing their concerns with your expertise. Again, this is a this is a community effort. Understanding reality, just as much as dealing with everyday issues, is a community project, and we need to work together. Right. I, I just have one
0: more thing, and uh-huh. it's really well. Two more things. <laughs> One of them is that what do you do about these misinforming videos that are three hours long or these articles that are, you know, you're going to be that person who went down the rabbit hole and didn't come out
1: alive. So I'm a lot happier with the misinformation videos of three hours than three minutes because a lot less people will watch it for a start. That doesn't mean that it's not hard to to go through. So for some of these, you'll have debunking materials that are already out. For others, you really need to address the source. Uh, you can say, look, I can't sit down and watch three hours, mm-hmm. but this is what makes this suspect. And this is why this really isn't a place where you need to go to for information. Does the person making the video have the relevant expertise? How does, how does their view fit within the general community of experts? A lone expert can be right, but... Uh, to be right, they have to have especially compelling data, and many of these videos don't. So uh, does the person have the expertise? If they do have relevant expertise, how do they fit within the community of experts? What's their data? Uh, are they drawing on large data sets? Did someone analyze them? We Most of us don't have the capacity to go back and re- do a scientific analysis, but we can turn to communities that can do that and ask them and expect them if they think something is wrong to tell us exactly and specifically what's wrong. Uh, There's people, for example, on Twitter, that uh, epidemiologists that have devoted time to going through some of the articles and videos and explaining bit by bit what's, what's the problem. They're doing it for free. They're doing it because they're worried about misinformation. And uh, looking them up, finding the right people to turn to for expertise can be incredibly helpful.
0: Right. Ed Nirenberg, by the way, is amazing.
1: Yes, he's great.
0: So people really need a point, point, point. Because I I think that people have to understand that they're going to give somebody who's busy, say a physician, a three hour video. We do not have time to watch it. No. I would love for people in terms of pre-bunking to be able to recognize signs so they can say wait a minute i love there's a cook his last name is he has the conspire the seven traits of conspiratorial thinking and i think that that can help the um mnemonic conspire i mean people can look it up i'll just mention it really quickly the evidence is contradictory there's an overriding suspicion nefarious intent throughout to get you something must be wrong there's a persecuted victim It's immune to evidence. It has nothing to do with evidence. Um, Reinterpreting randomness, um, those are the C-O-N-S-P-I-R. But I mean, if you can kind of get a pattern, if people can sort of recognize a pattern, and maybe if they really are down that rabbit hole to get good information from the detailed Mm -hmm. sources we've mentioned. Um, the other, one other thing really, really quickly, I just want to mention just because you're a lawyer and we didn't even tap into your legal expertise in vaccines, is a lot of my parents are saying, oh my gosh, I'm terrified. They're going to mandate this vaccine for children. I just Not want to address it. it.
1: Soon, but it could be come down at some point. So first of all, we, have, we are just starting clinical trials in children. They're just mm-hmm. recruiting for the 12 to 17, and they won't move younger until those are done. So it will be a while before this vaccine is even approved for children. Right. Parents, you should right now worry about getting the vaccine for your children because I'm worried about this. It's going to be a while because I'm, before I'm ever able to give it to my children, and I want it. So if you're worried about giving the vaccine to children, it's not going to happen for a while. If and when it's going to be approved for children, it's going to be on the basis of data that shows that it's relatively safe for children. Will it be mandated? The answer is it might be. Uh, We have a history of mandates for school for children, and this might be added. Although COVID-19 is more dangerous for adults than children, children have died from it. Children have gotten seriously sick. It's not risk-free from children. Uh, And children in school interact with teachers, which may be in high risk. So it may end up being mandated, but that would be a long way down the line. And if we're lucky, if we get enough adult vaccination and enough herd immunity, there won't be a need to mandate by the time to right. approved for children. So if you really are worried about mandate, the best thing you can do is help get the adult population vaccinated. If COVID-19 is under control, we won't need mandates. The other thing uh, you you can do is um, <clears throat> really ask yourself, what, why am I worried that five years down the line, my, my child's school might require me to get the vaccine. I don't know enough on what, on what the risk benefits are for children yet. If we get to the point where the vaccine is shown to have very small risk for children, will I get it for my child? If your answer is yes, then don't worry about the mandate. You're going to get the vaccine anyway. If your answer is no, then when you get to that point, you may have to worry, but that's a long way down the, the road. We're not well, that- there.
0: Right. That's a really helpful answer. I'm just going to end on one thing. And I thank you so much for your time. What I wish would happen is that the same people who are hesitant to vaccinate would wear their masks and distance and try to avoid the virus because we are all in this together. Yes. And so I thank you so much for doing this with me. I really, really appreciate it. And I'm hoping that you can email me some sources and I will hold on to them. And if somebody wants to email us at at health at joma.org, I will be happy to send them those resources. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Joma Preventative Health Podcast. If you've enjoyed this, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share this with your friends. For more information, check out our Instagram at joma underscore org. Check out our website www.joma.org, That's j-o-w-m-a. dot org or email us at health at joma.org.